time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Stephen Dimmitt is the host of the Nugget Climbing Podcast, a weekly podcast about, you guessed it, climbing. So, yeah, I was stuck in a cubicle. I was working for an airplane manufacturer in Bend, Oregon. And similar to what you're experiencing working from home, it's super isolating. And podcasts, not necessarily climbing podcasts, but just listening to podcasts all day, kind of became my anchor to to connection, you know, with with people. And it's really interesting to me, this this medium is so cool because you really do feel like some part of you is is that part of you is being filled to filled to some extent, you know. It's mm-hmm. not the same as sitting down with close friends and and having a, a you know a deep conversation with people that you've known for a long time. But there's there's like a openness and transparency and vulnerability kind of like this unpolished, this, this like roughness to this format that's really special and really does connect you to other people. And so I really craved that. And, and I guess felt like there was podcasting climbing that didn't exist that I wanted to listen to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like tying that back in. That's part of it. There's also, I mean, kind of, you know, to what I was talking about earlier, there's this idea, I think it was, Jim Rohn that had this quote that you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. And I don't think it should be taken literally, but it's a good framework for self-examination. You know, like if you look around at the people that you surround yourself with day in, day out, you do start to sponge some of their self-limiting beliefs, you know, some of their even mannerisms, good things, bad things, whatever. You know, a great example is, if you want to climb 513 and all of your climbing partners climb 12A, that's going to be super hard. But if they all climb 513, it's just a matter of time before you do too. And if they climb 514, you're going to climb 513 this season. And I think... That's why I always try to rub my partners on the back <laughs> of their neck. <laughs> so I was I about I, to say, that's why you got to get rid of your Gumby friends. Pick. Just get rid of them. <laughs> just dump them on the wayside. Just, get, just be done with them. Get some of their strength osmosis into my... Into my you say that. I feel like you've touched my neck, but I don't, what, I yeah. don't know why you'd rub my neck. <laughs> uh, I was trying to give you some of my, <laughs> my climbing skill. Thank you. <laughs> Anyway, sorry to interrupt, Steve. That's fine. It's so <laughs> it's neat. We, do. <laughs> we we have this we have this opportunity, you know, with the technology that we have where now with a podcast you can surround yourself with the best with some of the best performers in the world in whatever it is that you're interested in. You know, if you spend time with those people listening to them and how they process things, um what their what their approach to their craft is, what they struggle with, how they've worked through those low points in in their lives and you learn a lot from that and it really does change your beliefs in yourself and and what you can do, what you end up doing. So, I think that's you know, the the cell phone thing having this amazing tool in our pocket is of course a double-edged sword, but it really is a tool and it's I benefited a lot, I guess, from listening to a lot of podcasts out there about climbing, about business, about whatever. And and so I'm excited to share that. Yeah, it's interesting that um, uh, we, we started the conversation, kind of led into it. I don't know how much was actually on tape, but talking about just kind of talking shop about how certain people, as soon as you turn the mic on, and you say we're recording, like have this personality shift mm. and go into a mode of, of uh, you know, business. Mm. And um, we talked about how professional climbers are particularly um, sort of prone to that because they, you know, maybe just have to get through so many interviews. Um, but I, I, I still feel like the medium is such that, again, they're presented with this person who's not necessarily on the script that all the other media outlets that they have, interviewed you know or have have interviewed with are on we're not on that script because that script gets passed around you know it's like if you want to talk about the you know a higher level it's like nbc cbs fox all these people are going to do essentially the same interview Mm. you know with a few variations but when you throw in a podcast or an idiot who's sitting here and wants to just like rap 
I think it, I feel like it can throw them off their game, if you will, to get into these really interesting places. Um, if you're lucky, you know, and like you said, presenting the right questions and you don't always get it right. We do mm-hmm. these things like weekly or whatever, but I think it's a, a cool new medium and I've watched it evolve. And even as I watched it evolve like 10 years ago, I could, I could hear a lot of times people who walked into some studio and I, I always talk about Marin, Mark Marin as being this sort of unwitting mentor of mine, but you could feel these people who walked in and were like sideswiped at that time about what is this? Like, Hmm. you know, he's just coming out of a place that I'm not, you know, I thought this was just another press stop on my, on my press stops. And that, I think one of the great things about Marin and why he was such a fundamental part of podcasting was because he just trained all these celebrities or he just like took them in and, and made them do what he wanted them to do. And now it's the medium. It's what you do. You know, it's, it's yeah, just it's, like what you do. It's, it's really interesting to see how, how podcasting has become the, um, the place to like get your book out or like, you know, talk about the new movie you're doing or, and, and I'm talking about like celebrities or mm-hmm. famous people who go on the tour of all the, the top 10 most downloaded podcast lists on Apple or whatever it is. It's the new press junket. Yeah. It's like the new press junket. And so it's, it's I mean, new it's, as in like a few years ago. At well, this new point, as in a few yeah. years ago, but yeah, it's, it didn't used to be like that, but a really interesting example. And this is like far afield from climbing, but like, one of the big things about Rogan's interview with Elon Musk was that he smoked weed right. right on the air. And again, it's like, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you think somebody, a captain of industry like that would have walked into a place where he thought that was going to happen. <laughs> you know, no way you, you can, contr- everything, the message was completely controlled mm-hmm. and it still is in most media. And like podcasting has this place where now both participants understand that you're walking into this place where anything can happen, you know, because we we can swear and we can do things you're not supposed to do on television and stuff. And it's been a slow change, but now I think everybody gets it. Like people get it. And within the climbing world, I think it's the same, Hmm. you know, and I want my guests to understand that and believe it. And I want our guests to do that too. Um, Of understand that they might come in here and, get asked things that they've never been asked before. And I think that's maybe your, your angle as well, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you seen that shift? I mean, you've been doing the normal cast for what, 10 years. Yeah. Do your guests typically, do you feel that they know what to expect a little bit more these days versus when you first started? I would say that it's actually the arc is almost, you know, the best time was actually when they were a little off guard Okay. You know, interesting. And it's like we've come back to, and and I think podcasting, and not to say that that yours or ours or anything else is like this, but you know, I've watched it fall into some norms. And my big my big promotion of it, or my big belief in it, goes back to what we were talking with Andrew just a minute ago. It's like you could do anything, and it felt really like this is completely new. But like all human endeavors, it's it, it has kind of fallen into like, this is how it's done. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so I think I can think of interviews um, where people just were like, I don't even know. I guess I'll, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know what this is. You know, I can think, and I'm actually pretty, you know, I consider a friend now like Hazel Finlay. Mm. Like the Hazel Finlay interview, I think is a good one. Uh, early in Norma Kess, like in the 30s, mm-hmm. where you can just hear her like what you know because she was in my camper and moab like is this guy like for real who is he like why did i come here kind of a thing and i've always wanted to do another one with her because it's changed yeah she has her own now right yeah and she has her own and so it's like i think it's harder to be disruptive in a way Mm. you know what i mean um can i say something heterodox right now or (laughs) controversial yeah. Well, we're talking mean? about how what great pod, mean? hot. Well, just like against the orthodoxy. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So um, oh, we're gonna get into gender stuff. No. When you said hetero. Um. <laughs> like, don't get us canceled again. <laughs> well, not again on my part. Yeah, you haven't been canceled yet. <laughs> I haven't been, been canceled, canceled too many. Don't times. get the run out canceled, Bisharat. Yeah, this is a great fear of mine. <laughs> it, it, it's going to happen. I so. know. <laughs> I know. Just like wait till like episode hundred. <laughs> um. Hopefully we can make it that long. 
No, what I was going to say is that the we're talking up the about the podcasting genre, right. and I'm going to criticize it for okay, a second. Okay, awesome. Because yeah, yeah. Break it down. I have the perspective of obviously being a writer, mm-hmm. and if you want an actual profile of a person, you're not going to get it in a podcast because there's this performative aspect that people are on guard and they're trying to be funny or they're guarded or whatever it is. And the, I mean like the style of interviews that I've done and a lot of people do where they actually spend time with a person over a few days and like for climbing, go climbing with them, see them make dinner, watch them try to like, like uh, the first, uh, I, I wrote a profile of Chris Sharma, you know, a long time ago and it, we spent like five days together and the whole interview was premised on watching him deal with car trouble and not necessarily the climbing that he did. So when you sp- actually are out in the field and like getting to know someone, you, you get that perspective of who and wh- who they are that you cannot do in a, like a one hour performative interview. Right. Um, and so I think that's the big drawback. And the other thing about writing is that your subject doesn't really get a say in what you say about them. Right. So there's this unfiltered um, view about it, which I don't know. So I, I think that that as a, in terms of if, if the goal is to just get to know someone, I find the the written profile to be vastly more powerful oh, than no way. Than, than the I podcast. I want to go. You go. I want to challenge that because <laughs> why can't you spend a few days getting to know them, climbing with them before doing a podcast? You could, but then you're if That's if, what the, I try if to the format is still an interview, then they're still going to be guarded, or they're going to be trying to perform, or they're going to be saying the thing that they know that everyone is going to listen hear them say. The moment that like someone has car trouble and they they have no idea how to fix the car and they just start unscrewing stuff and pretty soon there's like a pile of nuts on the ground Mm. you know it's like or you know another thing i wrote about sharma once i'm just thinking about sharma now but watching him mow his lawn like (laughs) this is a very good example that you could never you could never put this in a podcast so he he's of the mindset of mowing a lawn that he just like goes anywhere like there's no straight lines whatsoever. Oh, Whoa! What an interesting thing to witness about a person. Like, right. what kind of mind do you have to <laughs> not do a normal back and forth? You know, mo- <laughs> I mean, I thought there mowing. was either straight or diagonal. Does I he have those weird, were the only? No, he's two just things. he just goes all over. <laughs> Does like, he have a weird just like he's lawn? like a he's he's like a cat following like a laser <laughs> pointer with his lawnmower. My dad would have kicked my ass for something like that. Like that would have not flown in the Cleese household. And I just put, me running around the yard with a lawnmower. Yeah. So anyway, that's I think that's the kind of stuff that uh, you know is really special and like just I don't know maybe it's just a little different. But well, now that's on a podcast. So now it's on go. a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I I mean I I totally get it. My fallback has always been, and and actually it's something that Stephen said. You know, it's like you can hit people with some questions that maybe, I mean, it's that idea of throwing them off kilter, if you will, um, to try to get an emergence, you know, not being able to just say the thing they'd said to the last person, to the last person. But I've always really like, um, fallen back to, I mean, this is different. And I think that they, they kind of complement each other is, you know, the, the sound of their voice, Mm -hmm. what makes them sound serious and then what they sound like when they laugh is such a big part, I think, of a person's personality. And what hmm. they laugh at and how much they laugh is, you know, this huge thing. And so, yeah, I mean, you you have this, uh, I think what you're saying is totally valid. Yeah. And then th- I've always thought person in person comes to life uh, yeah. th- when you hear their voice or whatever. And, and both things. I mean, we were all sitting here praising this thing but it's also it, whose hands is is it in the podcasting or the writing you know it can it can go either way with 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 that as well Well, just and just to like challenge the idea of like getting to know someone through questioning i've i challenge that wisdom sometimes because sometimes the best the most interesting things are just the things that you silently observe right 
you know, just watching, letting a person be who they are. And, um, you don't get that when they're in there, when they're in the hot seat and you're firing questions at them about what they do or don't do. So I don't know. It, yeah. It's a weird, the interview is like sometimes weird because sometimes I think you don't get to know the real person because they get to just say, I don't even know what's going to come out of my mouth next. Like why? And I'm just talking right now just to fill time because you both are looking at me. And <laughs> We're waiting so, to, for you to take a I don't know where so this is. Say something. I don't know where this, where I'm even going with this All point, right. but you know, this, I'm just saying that this is part of the constraints sure, of sure, the podcasting sure. format. Now they're, all, now they're both looking at me. <laughs> Rebuttal. <laughs> Rebuttal. Podcaster. This, this just came to mind. So I've had a couple experiences <laughs> where, like something I'll often do when I'm doing a remote interview, especially, is we'll finish the call and we'll kind of just touch base, debrief, whatever. I'll ask them to send me some photos. And I just leave my equipment on. And more than once, something really, really good comes up, you know, and I want to add it to the the conversation. And of course I asked their permission. I let them know I was right. still recording and make sure it's okay. Like I just had one with Tande Cotillo and I added 15 minutes of our post interview conversation to the end of one of the episodes. And if you listen to it, I was really struck by this listening back. I was like, I can't really tell the difference in tone between us being off the record and just talking. And it just sounded like the rest of the episode. And it was a cool moment for me because I was like, wow, that's really encouraging. We really were just having a conversation. And was that in person or on, on the... Um... It was over the phone. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That That's interesting because I've noticed because I've just started doing the 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 uh, through the internet ones yeah. with, with the Normacast anyway. We've done them off and on with the, with the run out. But uh, I've noticed that whole thing we were just talking about, the performative sort of versus the casual is quite a bit more pronounced in the video hmm. or in the, uh, the internet one because, because they, it's like with the remote one, oftentimes it's like, it starts, you know, we're going to get together on a call at 11 and we do like a moment of banter and then we're like, okay, we're off and running, you know, and it, actually the one with Nina just the other day was like this and we get down to business. She actually criticized me for it. For getting down to business yeah you were but i always feel like okay we've got you know we've set up this time mm. and here it's you know 10 to 11 on zoom or whatever and this is how we're going to do it and with the live ones it has been more of what what you're both talking about is that like we hung out a lot of times we did go climbing during the day we're like yeah let's let's go climbing and then i'll do it at night and we'll get together and you know sit down for the interview after we go climbing or whatever and then also I've noticed with ours too that that when you're like okay that you know this is the end of the interview and you you stop it's like everyone literally is like <sighs> so anyway what have you been doing yeah <laughs> do you know what I mean mm -hmm. and it's like this is off tape and exactly what you're talking about and and I I think we have too where we've like recorded it again yeah you know because it's like you can feel everyone like okay we're no longer performing mm -hmm. so you're right and you're right you're both right. We're all right. Everybody's right. Who's more right? <laughs> Don't answer that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but is that what you're talking about? This idea that like, okay, we're done with our interview. Like, let's talk about some other real stuff or if you will, or like, or maybe, yeah. 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 yeah there's, there's a sense of that, of course. But, but in that example I was sharing, I was surprised that it didn't sound as different as I thought it would. Right. It, oh, didn't, okay. it didn't feel as different as I thought it would from our conversation. And did you know this guy? Like we've personally? never met. No. We've never met yeah, in person. Yeah. We'd, had a, we'd had yeah. a phone call like a couple weeks before that to get to know each other a bit. Well, that and that's the thing. cool thing too is that like I think sometimes that feeling afterwards is like, hey, we just got to know each other. We're friends now. Yeah, and we can like chit chat. Yeah. Where when you first like connect and everybody pops up on the screen, we're all <laughs> just like, okay, look, there he is. You know, like, oh, look at his room. He's in the laundry room or whatever. Like, <laughs> You know what I mean? And then afterwards, sometimes that cool stuff happens because you're like, you're, you're pals now, or you've just got to know each other or whatever. That's why you should never stop recording. Never stop recording. Mm. Yeah. That should be our, our, our tagline. The run out. Never stop recording. We can use the, yeah, we can make the run out the North face logo. Uh huh. So it'd be the run out and then never stop recording. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure they would have no problem yeah. with that.
Just a 24-7 live We can stream. license it from them. Jeffrey Tubin wishes they'd stopped, stopped recording. <laughs> we never go full Tubin. That's the rule. But if you need to do that before the interview, because it'll help you relax and totally. feel more comfortable, you Cle- should. In the, uh, in the uh, something about Mary. We should send that to our, our clean guests. Clean the pipes. Yeah. yeah, clean the pipes. Steven puts out an episode every week. Yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing. How many episodes are you on? 40, as of tomorrow, 43. All right, I'm going to ask you a question. Let me I... just tell you, when you get to 50, it is so sweet. Yeah, it's so sweet, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you tell? We've got this glow. <laughs> Walking you on just air. really hit your stride right at 50. Well, I, I, well, I get to sit on the couch Ooh, when yeah. I hit 50. <laughs> Actually, you walked in and took the best seat That's true. in the this house. Is, this looked yeah, really Steven just walked in here and was like, the lounger. this is my seat. That's actually normally uh, Kick my feet up. Seat. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You just kicked his ass out of his seat. That's fine. I love it. No, when you sat there, <laughs> I was the like, armchair expert sweet, because <laughs> Andrew wasn't here. <laughs> he just rolled in on the podcast. This place is pretty nice. It is pretty nice. This yeah. chair is nice. I'm going to take it. All right. I'm going to ask you a question that I hate. Okay. So, But you've, all, you've got 40, what did you just say? 43. 43 episodes, so it's not as difficult. Highlight. What's, your, what's, one, of your, what's one of your faves? Alan Watts. Ellen Watts. Oh, yeah. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're a band homeboy. Right. Yeah. Right. He's a he's a local hero. Mm-hmm. He's a hero of mine. And he's just an amazing guy. Really? You know, he, yeah, I really look up to him a lot. I took Alan out to lunch. He had never heard of podcasts before. He'd never listened to one. And I bought him lunch and we talked for three hours. And this is just getting to know each other before right. the interview. And I remember leaving that Did lunch. Did he have car trouble at any time? During no this? car trouble. Okay. He wasn't eating that day. He eats every other day. So he had a beer and watched me eat lunch. And what? Yeah, yeah. You should listen to it. It's fascinating. Episode four. Okay. So Alan Watts. Does he I, eat twice as much on the days that Probably. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of his, his oh. thing. But yeah, he the fasting. The Same amount of calories, but half, right. half the eating days. I left that lunch and just thought, if no one listens to this, this is going to be the funnest thing I've ever done. I don't care. It doesn't need to work. This is, that was so cool. That was so much fun. It was fascinating. And that really stuck with me. Number four. Mm-hmm. See, I, I peaked at number 11. What was that one? Uh, Craig Martino. Oh, that was a good one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that was the best one. It's just been downhill since then. So hopefully you'll, you'll find another one because four is early to peak. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, Craig was just like one after another. It's like, man, that wasn't as good as the Craig one. Yeah. Sorry, Conrad Anchor. Didn't beat Craig D. Martino. There have been a lot of fun <laughs> ones. One thing that surprised me is that, you know, I've had a number of my friends on, people that are undercover crushers. They're really good climbers. They have a lot to teach me, to teach anybody, but they're they're not well known. And I've been really surprised that those have been some of my favorite ones. You know, just the energy. You You inevitably learn a lot about them that you didn't know just because of the intention that you bring to that conversation right and yeah those i've enjoyed those and what's even more surprising is that i've gotten feedback that makes it seem like listeners have enjoyed those as much or more than you know some of the pros and some of the people that are my heroes so and it's it's hard it's hard to get to know them as well you know like they they have limited time they have a lot more demands on their time and it's kind of a big ask to have them sit down and give you two hours and so trying to get more time on top of that to get to know them ahead of time. It's challenging. It doesn't always work. You've done 43 episodes, banging them out a week at a week at a time. It's crazy. <laughs> so you've done 43 episodes. Yeah. What do you think you're after? Well, what are you after with the, uh, with the nugget, you know, as a body of work? I guess I went into it thinking of it as a job. You know, it's funny. I get this response from a lot of people. Basically, everyone I've talked to that also has a podcast is like, what, one a week? What are you doing? But I'm thinking of it as a job, you know, and I worked as an engineer for a long time. I have some money saved up. So I've given myself space and time to focus on this thing Mm -hmm. and whether or not it ends up being sustainable and is a full-time paying job that supports me remains to be seen. But at least for now, I'm going to treat it as a job. And, you know, I work 20 to 30 hours a week on it. And I've worked a lot harder at other jobs in the past. So, and I, I enjoy this so much more than anything I've ever done. So 
I really love doing it and there's a lot of people to talk to. So um, I'm going to keep doing one a week as long as I can. Chris Kalman is a writer and climber from Flagstaff, Arizona. His new book is Damned If You Don't. Cochamo, so they call it the Yosemite of South America. It's this big, beautiful valley down in southern Chile. Um, it's actually, in many ways, it's more like Squamish than, um, than Yosemite, but like with Yosemite-sized walls. So it's really lush coastal rainforest, uh, like temperate rainforest down there. And to access the Cochamo Valley, you have to hike about 12 kilometers from uh, the end of this dirt road, which is right, it's right at sea level. So you're hiking from sea level, pretty gentle trail, but really, I mean, gentle as far as uphill goes, but then it's really super muddy and rutted out. It's crazy. There are times when you feel like you're passing through a slot canyon of mud. It's just like mud walls tightly packed on each side of you rising 10 to 15 feet high. And eventually you enter into this beautiful, idyllic, uh, pampa. It's like a, like a pasture, like just grassy field. And there are massive white granite walls all over the place. Everywhere you look thousand meter high walls. That's where you generally set up base camp. And then, um, you know, there are all these different sort of advanced base camps that you'll set up in various valleys, depending on where you want to climb. But that's kind of the general scene. And because that, because you have to do that 12 kilometer hike, it's, it's a very different experience from being in, in Yosemite or Squamish. It's really a backcountry climbing destination, but you couldn't really call it something like, you know, you wouldn't compare it to like El Chalten or something. Cause it's not really Alpine. So it's, it's big wall climbing, it's granite, um, and it's backcountry, but it's sort of has like the Yosemite feel to it where, you, you know, you might be hauling, you might be doing like a two or three day wall. It can rain a lot. It can rain like, you know, a week in a row, but it can also, you can have like 10 sunny days in a row with perfect weather. So what was your, uh, relationship? When did that start with this place that you're now, um, uh, becoming an advocate for or are already an advocate yeah for. so i went down there for the first time in 2010 i was in a funny uh point in my life where i was i had quit working for the national park service i was on a trail crew in rocky mountain national park and i was posted up as as at a pot farm <laughs> in southern oregon i had broken up with my girlfriend and was like missing a front tooth. <laughs> it was just a really rough period. And there wasn't, I didn't really. Ha- Did she take it? That- oh, <laughs> she took it, it from me. <laughs> um, it was totally. Un- it's like, I'm taking the dog <laughs> and I'm taking that tooth. <laughs> yeah. No, she, she's great. Uh, I, we're still friends. I can't, can't okay. pin that All on right, her. Cool. <laughs> but um, I was just, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And Climbing was the only focus, but I was like, climbing is also this stupid, selfish pursuit. So I tried not to climb and that just made me miserable. So anyway, my friend Grant Simmons, who went went to college with, he's one of my best friends still to this day. He saw the article in Alpinist magazine about Cochamo. They did like a mountain profile of it. And he was like, hey, we should go here. So... I kind of looked at my bank account, shrugged. <laughs> oh, oh, right. And I, I realized I could um, have a fake tooth put in in Argentina. And like the balance of that plus the flight was going to kind of equal out the the just doing the tooth in the States because, you know, so much less expensive down there. And various epics follow. But that's that's kind of how I made my way there the first time. Medical tourism. Medical tourism, yeah. How many routes are down there? I don't, I don't know too much about this place other than the photos I've seen. I would think at this point, and this is a very rough estimate, but I would think like 100 to 200 in that realm. And most of them are like, I think like the shortest routes are four pitches. Most of them are six pitches or longer. 
And I think kind of the average length is like kind of a rostrum sized, you know, like eight to 10 pitch route right in there. I think that some of the other things that have to be mentioned is, of course, the approaches. Um, I mean, they're probably all beat in and or a lot of them are probably beat in and cut out now. Um, again, I was there in 2007 mm-hmm. or eight, I think. And, uh, it was, it was hard to get to anything but the, but the Trinidad, um, the main kind of wall. And, uh, but, but like these jungle approaches are kind of wild. Um, again, the mud reappears yeah. after you start going up to the cliffs. And if you go to new cliffs and there's, there's still plenty of new routes to be done, you know, two things will happen. A lot of times you'll have to spend, uh, you know, a considerable amount of time, including days to sort of create a way to get to a cliff. And then, um, and then the, the new routing there is, uh, you know, other places like this, but vegetation in the cracks is super common. And a lot of times new routing involves, you know, a ton of extra cleaning, especially if it's going to be a free right. climb. Um, after you ate it and uh but even repeating roots if they haven't been done in a while they the the vegetation because of the the rainfall and everything else just creeps back in very very quickly down there so there's a lot of sort of uh vagaries of climbing that make it really different from a place like uh yosemite um among among the, the fact that it's remote you totally hit the nail on the head i mean it's it's definitely an adventure climbing destination if you go down there expecting something like Yosemite, you're probably going to be disappointed. Um, if you go down there looking for something a little more adventurous than Yosemite, then you'll you'll probably be really pleased. But a lot has changed, Calouse, since you've been there for sure. Those trails, I, I remember even when I was there in like 2010, there were sections of trail where you were just tunneling through bamboo. Like, I don't know if you remember that on the way up to Trinidad. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. felt like some little like rodent in a tunnel, you know, and you would like take your haul bag off and drag it behind you as if you were like doing a chimneying pitch. And I even remember one time on my way down, losing my balance in one of those tunnels and starting to slide and coming to a stop as a bamboo skewer because to cut out the trails, you would cut the bamboo, right? And then that would leave like these, these death skewers behind. I like came to a stop as this skewer, like went up past my sternum and into my mouth and hit the roof of my mouth, like cut, cut it <laughs> gently. But like, had I gone another two feet, you know, I might not be here today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, literally, I mean the, the fricking like the Viet Cong were famous for totally. using those. As <laughs> totally. Like for sure. Kalman you know, kebab. No joke. Kalman kebab. Yeah, right. exactly. But, yeah. I, but now yeah, so. the trails are much, much better. And that's, that's mostly a credit to the campground hosts, particularly Danny Seeliger, who, uh, I think maybe you guys recently talked to or, or Chris, maybe you caught up with him. Um, I ended up talking to Drew Smith and that made me think about Danny and, and, you know, I had done an article for, uh, climbing after our trip Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, Danny kind of, kind of, uh, uh, figured in prominently in our trip because it was before the refugio was even there. Um, it was just the camping and, uh. And plus, his whole story is just amazing, aside from developing Cochimo, um, including the fact that he hitchhiked or, like, you know, jumped trains and, and stuff all the way from South America to Reno, mm-hmm. including crossing the Darien Gap mm. on uh, foot. So, which is, it, you know, we don't need to get into the Daring Gap too much, but that's completely unheard of. Um, you can't even, you can't even enter into the Daring Gap from Panama legally and uh, wow. you certainly can't drive or anything into it. So yeah, yeah. So that's all part of Danny and he's the guy that runs, there's a refugio there now, although you can still camp as a climber and not have to stay in the refugio. But I imagine the foot traffic through there's, um, really come up quite a bit just with folks, uh, trekking. Yeah. Yeah, it's it actually is a more popular destination for trekkers than climbers. And I'd say the biggest demographic of people that go there are sort of like middle class to wealthy Chilean college kids because their summer break is uh, during the winter months because obviously other side of the world. So, you know, Austral summer is is like January, February. And, uh, they have these long, the long summer vacations. So they'll cruise down there 
you know, it's like a national park, but it's not a national park, which means no law enforcement and no rangers. And it's just like Woodstock, but for modern Chileans, uh, there's it's total uh-huh. lawlessness. And, you know, it looks like a lot of fun, but obviously that has various problems as well because there's also no trail crew and no like litter cleanup crew and stuff like that so a little bit of trivia that is that the the infamous aid rant Uh (laughs) um, which i'm still known for was videoed in cochimo um we had terrible weather (laughs) um and to and i was just thinking there actually was a few college kids there including some college ladies Uh um which sort of broke up the monotony and i was like Man, that would have actually been nice if some fucking college kids would have showed up and sure. just like relieved our our like. First of all, we were all sick of each other, and then I'd just been like, "Oh, sweet, here's some people having fun yeah. instead of like us who are sitting here being miserable in the freaking rain and drinking too much at like ten thirty in the morning." Yeah, the, that that still happens for sure. Uh, the drinking at ten in the morning and being miserable in the rain. Um, actually, you know. Over the time that I've been going there, I I remember like my first couple seasons getting to know literally every person that was in the valley uh, during my time there because there just weren't that many, including college kids. Mm -hmm. There was really only two campgrounds. That was Danny and Sylvie's camping La Junta. And then there was uh, Campo Aventura. Now there's five different campgrounds. And um, I, I don't even know what the exact numbers are, but it certainly feels like an exponential increase and the idea of like having a conversation with each individual that was up there, you know, it's just impossible. Like you could never do it. So it really has changed uh, the feeling of the area, but it's still, it's still super magical and it's not just gangbusters up there as far as the businesses are concerned. So the five campgrounds, well, with the accepting, accepting one, and I won't get into detail about that, but Four of them have kind of worked together to set camping limits so that it doesn't just feel like a total zoo at all times. And they've implemented like a reservation system and people need to get their permits online beforehand. And, you know, the feeling is still very peaceful when you're up there. So all your time down in uh, Cochimo, Chris, you've mm-hmm. has, uh, sounds like this is the inspiration for a, a new book that you is it finished or are you still working on it? Yeah. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, the book is like the metaphor I use is like, if you were carving an elephant out of a block of wood, you can definitely tell it's an elephant now. Like it's not just a block of wood, but there's still sanding to be done. Uh, you know, sanding and polishing and finishing. So the book's not a hundred percent there, but like it's close enough that I feel I'm trying to send it to the printer in January and I'm comfortable with that. Like I have enough time for that. So this is a fictional book. It's called damned if you don't and damned is in like a rip the way you would damn a river, uh, not like your eternal soul. (laughs) And uh, the story is definitely inspired by my experiences in Cochimo. I wanted to write fiction instead of nonfiction though, because I think it's a better entryway to points of discussion for a lot of readers. When you name a specific valley, you know, some people will have already been there and they'll be like turned off by your description because it won't match their experience. Other people haven't been there and maybe they aren't interested in it for whatever reason. But when you make it some fictional valley with fictional characters, everybody can kind of put themselves into that story and they can imagine Cochimo is my favorite place. It's not than necessarily someone else's favorite place. But we all have favorite places and we've all seen the way that our favorite places can change over time, whether it's from droves of tourists coming to, to somewhere that we used to have mostly to ourselves or too many climbers in a place where we, you know, we used to have the climbing to ourselves or far worse could be extractive industries in a place that, you know, a river that that used to be wild and free suddenly has a dam and a reservoir behind it. So is this a climbing story or is this about rivers? The The protagonist is a climber. And so he makes a trip down to uh, Patagonia and finds this valley and becomes enamored with it for climbing purposes. But after he's spent a little bit of time there, he comes to learn that 
the river that runs through the valley is slated for a hydroelectric dam to be constructed. And so he kind of makes this transition from dirtbag climber, sort of self-motivated, self-involved to a little bit broader conservationist looking to protect the places that he loves. But where the story gets interesting, in my opinion, is is where his efforts start to backfire on him. So this is, sounds like, you know, obviously pulled from your life. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are what are the I mean, we're, we're kind of been sort of dancing around it. But what are the threats that are uh, are facing Kochimo right now? Yeah. So the very first time I was there in 2010, I don't know, Calus, if you'll remember this, but or or if it was there when you were there, but there was a sign on the Fogon, like the old uh, little campfire building shack thing that you would go and store your food in or whatever, cook in. There was a sign. Stand in the, uh, stand out of yeah, the rain. Yeah, exactly. Is what we, we would mostly <laughs> <Right>. do. <in there. laughs> Make really smoky fires in. <laughs> right. um, there was a sign on the wall, the first, like, I remember it like it was yesterday, the day I arrived, that, I don't remember what the exact wording was, but basically said this river is now protected. And it uh, was explaining that there had been uh, the threat of a hydroelectric dam on the Rio Cochamo. And for people who haven't been there, I mean, I'm just trying to like, as an analogy, imagine if someone was was planning to like dam the Merced River and flood Yosemite Valley. You know, like this is that's the the scale of river and and like beautiful scenery that we're talking about and it was just utterly unthinkable to me that anyone could even consider such a thing but of course why is it unthinkable like that sort of things happened everywhere in the world so Cochimo has gone through its phases with slated hydroelectric dams uh clandestine and illegal efforts to construct a road up into the valley which would totally and irrevocably changed the character of the place. There are mining claims that have been bought up throughout the whole entire region. Like I said, it's not a national park. And so as tourism grows and grows, uh, the potential for industrial tourism and the negative effects of that are, are a serious consideration as well. So it's kind of like what Cochamo is today and what Cochamo will be in 20 years or 50 years are not the same thing. That that's almost certain to be the case. The question is, what's it going to be? If past precedent is any indication, what it's going to be is something that makes money for someone, because that's generally the way humans do <laughs> with uh, beautiful places. You know, well, the hydroelectric industry in the in Chile right now is like it's a huge industry, um, and I only know that because I wrote a story um, for the New York Times earlier this year about a kayaker doing this dropping a hundred and thirty foot waterfall, Whoa. and um, that was part of the story because when they got there, they just found that this um, hydroelectric company up river was planning on rerouting the river, which mm -hmm. would effectively just, you know, like ruin this waterfall that right. was going to be the site of this like record breaking kayaking stunt. It was, it was interesting because I, I did a bit of research. I reached out to the company and eventually like months after the article was even published, they got back to me with like an official quote about mm. <laughs> what they were getting up to down there. Yeah, um, but it, how it was going to help everybody, and then <laughs> and all the populations were going to benefit from it, and it was going to bring jobs, and everybody was just going to walk away with boxes full of money. Right. Well, that was that <laughs> is basically their statement. <laughs> no, they didn't go that far, but that's that is <laughs> no. sort of the pro, um, you know, the pro hydroelectric argument that these companies are making. But it's also you know green. It's a it's a renewable energy source, so it's not you know it's not exactly the worst thing either. So. Um, yeah, it's an interesting topic, but just to go back to your book, it's the idea of, um, writing a, a fictional story about this just as the last thing that would occur to me as a writer, because mm -hmm. I'm much more of a narrative journalist, I guess. And the genre of climbing fiction in general is very thin, um, because I never really understood why, but my co-worker at rock and ice magazine allison osius back in the day the her take on why there was so little climbing fiction was that 
the reality of climbing is often so much more extraordinary than you could ever come up with. You know, we've, we've all heard crazy stories of people who've wrapped off the end of their ropes and miraculously lived to tell the tale. And so, yeah, so it's an interesting genre to explore as a, as a writer, I think, given the fact that reality is, you know, just the real people, the real stories. And in this case, the real events that are actually threatening this real place that people go to and care about would seem to me to be just such much, so much more compelling than a fictionalized account of of a place like that. Gosh, there's a lot I want to dig into there. I'll try and do it in a way that makes sense and, and isn't all over the place. But I've always been more drawn to fiction myself as a reader, always been my passion. And I've been writing since I was a kid and fiction was always what I wanted to write. So there's that selfish um, motivation for sure. This is my second fiction book. The first one that I did was sort of this terrible uh, tragedy between a father and son climbing team. You're right. Like I could have written any number of, of horrible, tragic, like real life stories. But I think what you get into when you do that in that particular scenario is you never want to criticize the dead. You know, you never want to criticize their decisions the party line is kind of to say, oh, so-and-so died doing what they loved because it makes us feel better. You know, we don't we don't uh, take a critical look at our decision-making process and our risk assessment. So fiction was a really good choice there. As far as this story goes, you know, I don't want to be a spokesperson for Coach Amo, even though in many ways I've kind of unintentionally set myself up to be one. I'm a gringo, you know, this valley is in Chile and I, I pretty universally believe that the spokespeople for any place should be the ones that have been living there the longest, especially in these small communities like Cochamo is. So if I were to make this story about Cochamo, even as a journalist from a nonfiction perspective, I would still be speaking from my own experience. And I don't know if I'm really the right person to, to write that story. And then probably the biggest thing is uh, this, the conclusion hasn't been written yet. What's going to happen to Kochamo, we still don't know. And the risks are even at this point slightly uh, amorphous or indistinct because nobody's trying to damn the real Kochamo right now. Nobody's trying to build a road into that valley right now. It's more a question of what might happen. And so I wanted to write something that would kind of leave that open to interpretation and do it in a way that if someone wants to look at look at this story through the lens of Kochamo, they might say, cool, this is a worst case scenario for what we hope never happens there. And it might be a blueprint for what not to do. But you could also apply that lens to wherever your special place is too. You know, someone could read this book and say, gosh, I see a lot of parallels between this and Indian Creek. And uh, we need to be really careful how we manage Indian Creek in the, in the years to come so that this doesn't turn into a, a big problem too. Yeah, just a historical thing. I didn't want to interrupt you before, but they had a plan to damn Yosemite. Hetch Hetchy is actually the compromise. Yeah. Uh, but but that was a big um, you know push back in the day was to try to damn damn the Merced and fill that place up. It was perfect. You know, it's like granite, like it's not porous, like perfect place for a freaking reservoir in some people's right. minds. So um, just to make sure that that's <laughs> the fact is, is that that was on the table. Uh, that's certainly like a central theme in the book is kind of comparing this valley with Yosemite, both the good and the bad. Mm -hmm. And and part of that comparison definitely is Hetch Hetchy. And there's even a scene in the book where these two climbers are kind of duking it out about what should happen there. And, and the one is kind of taking the stance of, yeah, have you seen Yosemite Valley? That place is destroyed. I mean, it, you couldn't find anything worse than that. And the other guy's saying, well, have you seen uh, Hetch Hetchy? Like, what about that? And so they're kind of going back and forth. I've tried uh, my best not to provide an answer because I think there are compelling arguments to be made on either side. 
if there is an answer that I'd like to insinuate, it would probably be that neither of them is the answer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like Hetch Hatch and Yosemite Valley are both models of one type of use of land. And, and I think that going forwards in the future, if we want to protect true wilderness, we need a different model. I was going to ask you about that kind of interloper, you know, vibe of, of being a gringo and being someone from the United States that's, you know, trying to poke their nose into some business down there, you know, and, and it's actually the whole region is famous for that. Good and bad. You know, I'm sure there's plenty of, of Tompkins fans down there and plenty of people who, you know, just as soon um, those folks never showed up. What about the the town? You mentioned, you know, the people living there the longest should have the say. And and I remember, you know, there there's that little town of Cochimo. Puerto Montt is sort of more the place where you supply yourself because um, the town of Cochimo is like a strip of, of little houses and an old, you know, a supermarket, I think. Like it's not a supermarket, sorry, <laughs> like a you know, place to get snacks. Is there a conflict there as there often is, you know, in places looking at even Bears Ears? You mentioned Indian Creek, like, you know, the Monticello locals and, and you know, are at odds with Bears Ears for the most part while the tribes are for it. You know, you've got all these different different players that are, are leaning one way or the other. What's the what's the what's sort of the tension down there between maybe the folks that are up in the valley that that like danny and, mm-hmm. and sylvie and down in the, in the front range where they they think you know oftentimes that well we are going to benefit from something here because there will be jobs right and- of course the community of Cochamo is not a monolith right so just like you know right. you couldn't speak for any sort of ethnicity and say they all want this the same goes for them for for the people of la comuna cochamo but from what i can tell uh from the people i've talked to and also seeing news from the past five to ten years of protests being led by the region and like marches done on horseback from from the comuna to to like puerto varas or puerto mont people down there like their sort of pastoral way of life. You know, it's a quiet place. Cochamo is a small fishing village. Travel by horseback there is as common as travel by car. There is a tourist in- industry and it's growing. I think generally people are in favor of that, but they don't necessarily want breakneck tourism that is uncontainable and uncontrollable because they want to retain their cultural heritage and their way of life. Cochamo, I, I don't know the exact dates, but it's only very recently that it's even been accessible by road. You know, within like the last 30 or 50 years or something, the road through town was only paved in like the last five or 10 years. My friend Fabian, who is a horse packer down there, you may have even met him, Chris. He yeah, I think we. I think that's who who got us. Yeah, yeah. So he he brings uh, like climbers gear up to the valley, and he also does these trekking trips. Like that guy was on a horse the first day of his life, literally, because he was born in this this in one house that had its heating was through a gas stove, and uh, they were he- warming the house after he was born, and he started turning blue. So they picked him up put him on a horse and took him to a different house. <laughs> you know, uh, there was, uh, his parents were, are from Cochamo and they're, they were living there before there was electricity in the town. This is a place that has escaped the, the trends of modernization until fairly recently. And so the cultural values there are still pretty strong. And I think that goes not just for the town of Cochamo, but that entire part, the Los Lagos region of Chile, as soon as you start getting down to where the coast breaks up into all of these fjords and islands and archipelagos, you have these disparate, disconnected communities that are very unique and sort of very traditionally valued. So tourism can be done in a variety of different ways, but like having throngs of cars driving through town, not stopping except for maybe at a gas station and then posting up in a valley is very different from having kind of a controlled stream of tourists, maybe stop in town, go to the little supermercado you were talking about, go to like a ferreteria, maybe stop in and buy some empanadas, 
uh, or a, like a cafecito or something, and then like making their way up and hiring local guides to help them. Because, you know, 12 kilometer hikes through knee deep mud aren't accessible for everybody. <laughs> And so uh, the guide services are really like they exist there and they have a real place. So, uh, Chris, you're kickstartering your your the printing of your is that a word kickstartering? Kickstartering, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think it's, you just it's like yeah, go kick funding kickstartering. <laughs> Start that over, uh, or we're not. <laughs> Or not. or not. <laughs> you got the question. Yeah, you, you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. You, you're self-funding your, the publishing of your book uh -huh. uh, or crowdsource, crowdfunding. Yeah. Crowdsourcing it, funding it. <laughs> Crowdfund sourcing the Kickstartering Crowd of my new novel book. <laughs> why, uh, why are you going that route? Um, there are so many reasons. The first and probably the most obvious is penguin random house didn't approach me yet uh you know it's super hard to to navigate that industry and i don't think i'm good at that side of business that's a big reason as far as like the niche climbing media goes you know climbing fiction as you guys have mentioned is not really a thing so i like i went to mountaineers books um when I was doing As Above, So Below, and they were like, well, we don't do climbing fiction. Patagonia Books told me the same thing. They were like, it's just not something we do, so good luck. But the life of a climbing writer is one that's filled with constant rejection. You know, you're always like begging for someone to let you in, for some door to be knocked down, for some, like, nobody's like sending me emails, giving me assignments. You know, I'm constantly pitching and constantly getting rejected. And I just decided uh, a while ago that I was going to try and flip that model on, on its head. And instead of constantly pursuing the people that didn't want anything to do with me, I was going to start paying attention to the people that already did care about my work and put my effort into uh, showing my appreciation to them. So kickstarting the book allows me to make it whatever length I want. It allows me to make it hardcover if I want to do that, which I do. Uh, I can take money and purchase incredible illustrations, original hand-drawn art by Craig Muderlach. I can get Sarah Nicholson to do this beautiful cover. I mean, I can call all the shots and do what I'm pretty sure the people who like my work want to see. And that allows me to have a much closer relationship with my readers. Now, there may only be you know, a thousand to 2000 of them. But the other side of it is when you publish yourself, the margins are way better. I published a climbing guidebook with Sharpend, who's incredible. And I would never publish a, sh a climbing book on my own because it's way too much graphic design and it would just be a nightmare. But on that book, you know, I probably make like a dollar or $2 a book that's sold. If I kickstart a book successfully, and sell it for the same price, you know, I'm going to take home either the full value of the book or wholesale, which is 15 to 30 times as much money per book. So I don't have to sell nearly as much of them. I can sell one thirtieth the number of books and still make the same amount of money. So, you know, I'm sure this is what so I it's do. It's all about money. That's what you're it's saying. all about money. That's right. <laughs> I mean, to a certain degree, though, this is this is my You're job. You're making like, climbing fiction sound lucrative. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I mean, it's a small piece of the puzzle. Yeah, it sounds like podcasting. I mean, Andrew's still paying for that microphone. <laughs> We've been doing this for two years. It's on, it's on like layaway, old school layaway. Well, it's a really good looking <laughs> microphone. <laughs> it's been worth it. Every penny. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what brings me back to like the penguin comment. I mean, obviously, if, if mm -hmm. a large publishing company gave me an opportunity to write something and have it read on a large scale, you know, I would leap at that opportunity. But like I said, it's just too psychologically defeating to constantly be sending out these emails and pitches that don't even get responded to. I mean, at least a rejection letter, please. <laughs> the no response is just like, oh, my God, what do I even do with that? Do I send a follow-up? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a brutal world. Yeah. I want to make sure it's pointed out that I'm just very grateful. The Kickstarter is 80% funded at this point, and I'm a weekend. 
I've been able to build something of a career out of this and I never thought I'd be able to. And every time someone buys a book or every time someone on my email newsletter, like responds to an email I send out, anything like that, it just, it feels really good. And I'm just really grateful to everyone out there that is reading my work. Cause why would you like read Tolstoy, read, uh, you know, Hemingway, read like, you know, Annie Prue or something like, why would you ever read Cowman? And yet people do. And, and it's just, it's, it's really, really feels great. So thank you to all those people out there that, that do. Have you ever sent 514? Do you want to? Well, you can give up everything for a monastic existence where you reduce the joy you had for climbing to a tiny ember, only fanned into flame for a brief second once every six months at the top of your gruelingly overcome project. Or you can become a patron of the runout. This month, our merry band of runout rope guns were treated to perhaps the deepest discussion of Clint Eastwood's infamous climbing movie, The Iger Sanction, ever recorded, printed, or otherwise uttered. The racism of that war was was completely on display. Black exploitation films were were in the theaters were very much part of it. So I think that that probably was in the ether as far as what they were thinking about with this this interracial relationship, which you know we don't even think about in films anymore. Yeah, but was like you said, it was like it would have been pretty wild just to randomly put that in there for no reason. It was definitely conscious. It was definitely intentional. And so it's it's a it's a bit of a conundrum to watch this film now. And I would encourage our listeners to just watch it because if you can get past the sort of cringy nature of, you know, all of the transgressions that we've we've come so far uh from in, in twenty twenty, it's an interesting conundrum to like ponder, like what were they trying to actually do? So now do you want more run out than you're already freeloading? I mean, getting for free? Go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast to become a rope gun and send 514 with merely the click of a button. Today's final bit is brought to us from boulderer, wanderer, and climbing advocate, Chris Schulte, who's been in the game a long time. Actually, after a bunch of years of, of being a, a fringe climber and what was once a, a fringe sport going on to to tell masses of, of new climbers about how to be outside responsible, I'm kind of tired uh, I, of, the, of this feeling of, of always fighting the, the threat of this incoming idiot mass or, or fiddling with some house of cards that, that topples without meaning every time some... Asshole noob or crusty old bastard takes a, a dump under a boulder or camps in some ridiculous spot, flaunting the agreement of of, of access and, and, and jeopardizing it for everyone. Or or some famo pro with some, like, ha-ha funny wet rock we're climbing in the Snow and Joe's Valley climbing video. Or, or blowtorch the new chip told everyone knows about. And, you know, there's... We're still out here picking up micro trash and still seeing you move boulders to camp in the no-go zones on private land or or <laughs> driving across the desert and 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 then there's the conflict of of you know well what is wilderness anyways what what are these these lines that that were drawn and and who draws them and who gets to draw them what what are public lands and fuck let's let's face where they come from and and the fact that they're Played as cards and treated as resources, not for the spirit, you know, but for cubic meters of gas and barrels of and board feet of and and as some kind of <laughs> outdoor museum as as in memory for people who are actually still here, despite the best efforts of so many. <sighs> I'm, I'm tired of everyone clumping up like like it's the club and the support group has to be everywhere with uh, the the hype kids and the and, and and just leaving this wide swath of shit and impact in, in the wake of the holiday weekend i'm i'm tired of taking a, a a dangerous pursuit into which i and so many people i know have poured their life and resources and sort of turning it into something digestible and, and consumable for for whomever it's not for whomever you know it's you you need to learn 
a few things before you even show up. You need to know how to be outside. You need to understand this shit can kill you or your partner or somebody standing nearby. And, and that it's it's a ton of fun, but it's also it's deadly serious. And and the places in which we do it aren't some sweaty stationary bike or some waxed and painted curb for you to just come along and bang whenever. You you come correct, friends, <laughs> like like some old time camper or. A, like some 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 monk or a Star Trek explorer or a, a, like you're going to church and with a with a huge goddamn reserve of perspective you shut up and you listen to what the land and your your pursuit can tell you or you can just turn the fuck around and go home because this is a hula hoop for you you know and all the time we're trying to figure out what climbing is over here and what we can shoehorn into it and man lately I'm kind of more keen on places where they already have it figured out for the last couple hundred years. And I'm keener than ever to, to get out and away, though the messy part just keeps going, and, and that's, that's what we do. You've just completed another episode of The Runout, a podcast from the sharp end of climbing. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and I run Evening Sends, the only climbing website on the internet. And I'm Chris Kalouse, host of the Enormacast, the only other climbing podcast. Please leave a review of our show on iTunes, share an episode with your friends, and follow us on social media. We should be fairly easy to find. Drop us a line, let us know what you think. My email is andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And my email is chris at runoutpodcast.com. And also, please support our show. Go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. Mm-hmm.